Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care podcast. I am your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today, I will be speaking with James C. Jackson, Saidi, and Carla Sieven, MD, about the article, It Takes a Team, Contributions of Each Team Member in a PICS Clinic, published in Critical Connections. Dr. Jackson works as an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Allergy, Pulmonary, and Critical Care Medicine and the Center of Health Services Research at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Sieven also works in the Division of Allergy, Pulmonary, and Critical Care Medicine as an assistant professor of medicine and serves as director of the Pulmonary Patient Care Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Drs. Jackson and Steven are part of a team at Vanderbilt running the IC Recovery Center, a facility dedicated to addressing the multifaceted recovery needs of individuals who have survived a critical illness. They are with us today to discuss the recovery center, lessons learned, and some best practices for those seeking to improve care for patients leaving their ICU. I would like to welcome both Dr. Jackson and Dr. Steven today to the ICU podcast and uh, to briefly uh, introduce yourselves in terms of your experiences and what brought you to this particular project today. This is Carla Steven. I am working mostly clinically at Vanderbilt, seeing patients both in the ICU and in the outpatient setting. And a few years ago, one of our colleagues, who is an expert in critical care medicine, had a family member experience a critical illness. And following her discharge, he was amazed to find that he and his wife were really at a loss to handle all the problems related to her ICU stay. And that was really the seed to start this clinic in 2012. This is Jim Jackson. I second what Carla had to say there was uh, an imperative here that she described where people recognized that there were few resources available to patients. For me and for many others, another dynamic at work here is that uh, research has been going on around the country and around the world for the last decade and a half or so that has highlighted the fact ICU survivors, medical and surgical ICU survivors, often have debilitating new problems. Too often, those new problems that they leave the ICU with fly under the radar screen, and people really have lacked clinical resources in that early post-acute period. So our work in this clinic uh, intersects with the research that has emerged saying that there is a vital unmet need we're trying hard to address that in whatever way we can. Uh, maybe I could get you to give me some history of how the two of you went about soliciting collaborators in forming this clinic, some of the barriers involved, and how you overcame those barriers. Yeah, I think the formation of the team really sprang up very organically. We had active medical ICU we had a focus on interdisciplinary efforts in the ICU, including pharmacy, psychology, nursing, and case management. And when we started to realize that our patients who we had cared for in the ICU were having problems after discharge, it seemed very natural for us to target the things that we could target, the team members that we had at hand. And also, we tried very hard to respond to 
the problems that our patients were telling us that they were having. And those focused really in great part on the cognitive and neuropsychological problems that they were experiencing and that were really the most under the radar, as Jim said, because they were not well recognized by their usual practitioners. Most patients see their primary care provider after a hospital discharge and the kinds of problems that they were dealing with are not those that can easily be dealt with in a 20-minute follow-up appointment. And we also were, at the same time, forming our nurse practitioner model of care in the ICU. We had a nurse practitioner team taking care of their own patients, and we really hoped to have some continuity of care between the ICU and the outpatient setting, which doesn't seem that unusual now, but actually it was kind of a crazy idea because a lot of the people that work in the ICU with critically ill patients only work in the ICU and don't have a good understanding of what goes on in the outpatient setting. And the people who were taking care of patients in the outpatient setting after discharge had no good idea of what was going on in the ICU. So we really wanted to be that bridge between ICU and outpatient setting and fill this gap that we really perceived between this really high-intensity resource area, which is the ICU, and this low-intensity resource area, which is the outpatient setting and at home. In that gap, we also saw an opportunity to really intervene on some of the things that are becoming more and more important to patients, to healthcare providers, and to hospital systems, namely readmissions, adverse effects of medications, sequelae of the care that we provided in the ICU in an effort to save somebody's life, but we're causing problems down the road. And that's how we came up with our team, which is a pharmacist who's our ICU pharmacist who rounds in the hospital with us and is familiar with inpatient issues and the medications that are often started in the ICU and then not discontinued in the outpatient setting. Neuropsychologist Jim Jackson, who does cognitive and affective disorder screening in the clinic, one of our nurse practitioners from the nurse practitioner ICU service who comes down to the outpatient setting expressly for the team clinic, myself, an intensivist and pulmonologist, and a case manager to help us troubleshoot a lot of the things that seem to get dropped at the big transition between hospital and the outpatient setting. Yeah, you could imagine that there are even other professionals from other disciplines that could serve on a team such as ours that could be part of an ICU recovery center, physical therapists perhaps, uh, rehabilitation experts, but at a certain point it becomes a practical challenge. That is, you have the, the people from key disciplines on your team, and even with those individuals all seeing patients, the visit may take a couple of hours, perhaps more than that, so if you begin to add people from other specialties, suddenly uh, what was a two-hour visit becomes a, a day-long visit, and our patients have indicated that they would balk at that, that that would be too long for them. So we've tried to figure out who are the right people to put on the bus, who are the people that we need to refer our patients to consistently and reliably, what are the referral networks we need to develop, and uh, what is the right amount of time that might perhaps wear these patients out a bit, but not make the experience so aversive that they really can't tolerate it. That's the challenge. Right. What is the right amount of time in your experience? 
you know, our initial goal in the clinic was to really provide a one-stop shop, as Jim alluded to, but we have found that a visit that extends beyond two hours is really too much for these patients, most of whom are suffering from weakness, fatigue. Uh, many are not able to drive themselves, so it's a you know burden on the families to come with them. Also, they're, they're just worn out after two hours, so we try to limit it to two hours. What are the logistics of each visit? Who do they see first? What happens? So everybody has a screening spirometry first in our respiratory therapy lab that the purpose of that is to screen for undiagnosed respiratory disorders that may be contributing to their physical functioning and screen for airway disorders, for example, related to long-term intubation or tracheostomy. And then each patient gets a six-minute walk test that's also performed by our respiratory therapists as a sort of poor man's exercise test as a measure of endurance. And we originally started doing that really out of uh, scientific curiosity to see if our patients were as weak as those have been described in the literature after an ICU stay, and indeed they are. But in addition, it's been a very useful clinical tool to encourage patients to do additional physical therapy if that's indicated for critical illness myopathy. And then the patient is put back into the exam room. They have vital signs taken. Usually they see uh, Joanna Stallings, our critical care pharmacist, first. She does a medication review and a targeted pharmacy intervention to try to eliminate unnecessary medications, make sure that dosages are right, avoid drug interactions, and improve compliance by providing, for example, pillbox if the patient is having some cognitive problems and having trouble reconciling their medications every day. That visit is usually followed by the nurse practitioner visit. She does a targeted physical exam and review of the hospitalization. That's a two-way street, so she's reviewing the hospitalization with the patient and the family. You would think that the patient lived through it and the family lived through it, so they would know all the details, but in fact, In many cases, the patients have little or no recollection of what went on in the hospital and are surprised to learn some of the details of their medical condition. In many cases, very grateful to get that sort of recap or debrief after the ICU. And we make sure that their medical needs are being met. Jim Jackson does the neurocognitive evaluation and refers further for various kinds of therapy if necessary. And then our case manager does a review of their insurance, make sure that they're getting everything that they need, for example, physical therapy that was prescribed at hospital discharge or IV antibiotics that maybe never got to the patient because the patient was too weak to go home and is staying with a friend, just to name one example that we experience in the clinic, and make sure they have all their durable medical equipment, oxygen, et cetera, And if they don't have a primary care physician, helps them establish a relationship with a primary care physician because we're not trying to replace that person in their lives. But many patients are discharged from the hospital with the advice to follow up with their primary care provider in two weeks, and they don't even have a primary care provider. So that's one of the things that we try to do for them in the clinic. If at all possible, and if appropriate, we like them to return to the clinic as well, often they will return eight weeks later, 10 weeks later, something like that. Sometimes they will return multiple times. Part of the reason for that is that particularly in the cognitive and psychological domain, but I think with respect to physical functioning too, people are often improving very rapidly in this 
early post-acute phase. So there may be a problem two weeks after discharge that looks quite severe with regard to memory functioning, for instance. And if you see that patient 10 weeks later, that problem could have resolved. Sometimes it doesn't, but it's very useful to see that patient again in the near term. It allows you to be a little bit more thoughtful about making definitive recommendations. It is difficult in the psychological and cognitive space to be exactly certain of what you're seeing at that first visit because, again, things shift quite rapidly. So as we're able to, we like patients to come back. And and though our goal is not to be identified as their primary provider, and indeed none of these patients would see us that way, there have been a fair number of people that we develop pretty robust relationships with in the context of them coming to see us multiple times. I'm really interested in Carla's mentioning of the patients not recollecting much and really appreciating uh, reliving the experience because I know that Vanderbilt has also done a lot of work on delirium and how really reestablishing that memory is important. Have you gotten additional feedback from patients about how the clinic has worked for them emotionally and psychologically? Yes, we we survey every patient who comes back and ask them specifically what aspects of the program are most useful to them. And the number one positive response is talking to a nurse or doctor about my problems, including the problems they had in the ICU and the problems that they're faced with in the early recovery period. I think, you know, as intensivists, we do a lot to patients in the ICU and frequently we're not able to explain at the time or the patient is not able to accept our explanation at that time due to illness or sedation The families are under extreme stress, and to have that moment sort of post-trauma, as it were, to really sit down and have the time to talk to the families and the patients about what they've been through and how that's going to affect their lives going forward has been very valuable to patients based on their feedback to us. I think that's a huge point, and uh, I, I would highlight it briefly What we know from research that we've previously done is that around the time of discharge, ICU patients may appear to be alert, perhaps even engaged, but all too often we know that the lights uh, may be on, but but no one's home. You know, that uh, you could be conversing with a patient in the ICU, they could be nodding their head, they could appear quite attentive, but... Are they really understanding what you're saying? It's very likely that they're not. We know that because often if we administer mental status exams at the bedside, we learn that someone thinks that it's 1910 when we know that it's 2015, that someone thinks that Abraham Lincoln is the current president, and even though they seem to be fully intact cognitively. So I think too often we make assumptions about people understanding things when during that late ICU phase, they may actually be quite impaired. So when we relate information to them, often factual information, just detailed information about what their diagnosis was, how long they were on a ventilator, what exactly happened to them, that's hugely useful to them because they may have heard that before, but they likely didn't really understand that, nor did they really input it. Um, So it's very empowering to them to have that information and understand it. Have you tried having patient support groups? 
We have, and we think that's a hugely important element of this. We have recently launched a post-ICU support group that we have envisioned to include potentially both family members in the ICU and individuals who have left the ICU, who have survived the ICU and may want to return to Vanderbilt for a support group. So that's a very new development here. These things are challenging to develop and get off the ground. One of the barriers, of course, is that some ICU survivors are not terribly excited to return to the hospital where their critical illness occurred, even if they feel like they got excellent care there, that can be a painful process for them. As Carla referenced, many of the people who need support the most are likely the people who are the most debilitated, in some cases the people who live the furthest away. So there are practical barriers, but we are excited about this support group, and in fact, we think that a support group model, which requires relatively limited resources that seems to be fairly scalable, that that will likely be something that takes hold in the context of the care of ICU survivors and probably will be quite effective in years to come. It's done with stroke patients, it's done with cancer patients, it's done with trauma ICU survivors, and we feel like it's high time that we engaged it with medical and surgical ICU survivors as well. So we're doing that. Is there a particular time point after a patient's discharge from the ICU when you expect to see them in the PICS clinic. How does it work? Yeah, so we actually spent a lot of time talking about this. When we started talking about it, it seemed like not that critical a question, but it's actually quite a complex issue. So as we alluded to, we're trying to provide a service to patients, and we're also trying to intervene upon sort of hard outcomes like readmissions and recurrent illnesses. So based on some limited data from the UK and their experiences with a post-ICU follow-up clinics there, we felt like we needed to see them fairly soon after they left the hospital to be able to intervene on some of the things that are most commonly causative of readmission and to intervene on any disease processes that we could improve with early intervention. But as Jim referred to in the context of neuropsychological outcomes, we also don't want to be documenting a lot of bad-looking situation with, you know, that might improve on its own with time and you know, further down the road in recovery. So we aim for two weeks after discharge to home. And we say discharge to home because if somebody's still they may have left the hospital from their main hospitalization and they're no longer in the ICU, but if they're in a rehab facility, long-term acute care, skilled nursing, for example, in many cases, that's still like being in the hospital and especially the neurocognitive uh, sequelae of critical illness may not be manifest to them until they go home and try to readjust to their normal routine and their normal environment. So we aim for two weeks after discharged a home, and with that aim, we succeed at about four weeks on average. In many cases, patients are still hospitalized somewhere, and that is a logistical challenge in terms of trying to decide when their appointment should be. It has happened not that infrequently that we look at the next day's panel to see who we're going to see in clinic and see that one or more of those patients is in the ER or has already been readmitted. So two weeks may not even be soon enough, but that's what we aim for. 
And while that two to four week window probably represents 90 or so percent of our patients, we do get some referrals, see some people who have been out of the ICU for a year, have been out of the ICU for two years, who somehow during this long span of time really fell through the cracks, who are really struggling and feel like they need to see experts who may understand the unique constellation of symptoms that they have had. So although I think our, our model will always focus on these newly discharged ICU survivors, there absolutely is room to try to engage and hopefully improve these chronic problems that have taken hold and been so hugely disruptive to people uh, for years and perhaps even decades after the ICU. There are reasons to think that we could perhaps impact those people positively in the same way that we are impacting these people on the on the heels of their ICU discharge. So we do see a few of those from time to time and likely we'll see more of them in the future, I think. That's a nice segue to my next question for you, speaking of you know, impact and efficacy. I, I know that your clinic is quite early in its startup. I think you've had it for three years now. But I was wondering if you had any data or any conclusions you could share with us about its efficacy. And I'm thinking in particularly about things such as any influence on readmission rates for these patients, reduction in healthcare utilization, any change in the quality of life scores, any changes in their satisfaction scores, any uh, impact on the psychiatric sequelae that we've been talking about, and any feedback from uh, various institutions on you know, the concept of subject clinic. So a lot of the data that we have gleaned so far has been anecdotal. We're in the process of trying to obtain grant funding through various mechanisms to be able to much more comprehensively analyze the outcomes of our patients. What we know anecdotally is that patients are not only reporting that they're hugely satisfied with this clinic, but that in many individual cases we have identified problems early, we have made referrals that seem to make a significant difference to the quality of life of these patients, that in some cases we have, you might say, headed problems off at the pass, and uh, indeed in some cases rapidly and I think efficiently intervened in the psychological and, and cognitive domain in a way that has uh, improved outcomes. So that's been uh, very encouraging. What we've noted is that for some patients, particularly in the mental health domain, for instance, there's something hugely therapeutic about being heard and being affirmed, about learning that you're not alone. Many of our patients characterize themselves as going crazy. That's the, that's the bucket that they put all of their symptoms in. They have memory complaints and they assume they have Alzheimer's disease. So for them, it's hugely heartening to learn that in fact what's happening is they have some symptoms of depression that are impacting their memory and attention, that they're not in the throes of a dementia. That recognition leads to a lot of positive downstream effects. In many cases, we've been able to identify problems with driving, for instance, where we've been able to say to a patient, Given your physical debility, given your visual-spatial problems, it seems hugely dangerous for you to drive a car. I think families have appreciated that and 
problems have been averted. I, I think our pharmacist, Joanna Stallings, has had many cases where she has identified medication problems that could have huge consequences for patient health, readmissions, things of that sort. We've been able to alter those. We've made referrals to people who are able to, in um, a very specific way, engage particular outcomes that patients are struggling with to improve those. So although a lot of our data is anecdotal, we feel like we're making a difference uh, in the lives of these patients. Carla, do you have a thought about the harder outcomes? Yeah, I think as an intensivist, before we started seeing these patients after discharge, I really felt like we were doing a good job in the ICU if somebody left the ICU alive. And we have a lot of mechanisms in the hospital to try to smooth the transition from the hospital to home. You know, we prescribe home physical therapy. We think our patients have, you know, all the resources that we are prescribing for them. But when we actually see people come back to the clinic, we realize that the reality doesn't match our ideal. And in many cases, it's really been very simple interventions that we've been able to accomplish just as serving as sort of a, you know, a catch-all or a backup mechanism in the discharge process as a transition clinic to get people the services that they need. And we already knew that they needed and they were prescribed, but they just didn't get. For example, we had a young woman with a very severe critical illness who came in extremely debilitated with an infant and a young child and no social support and she had been prescribed physical therapy and occupational therapy and some home medical equipment when she left the hospital but she didn't actually receive any of those things because she didn't have a primary care doctor to receive the paperwork and and that's you know that's just a failure of our medical system but i think is also some low hanging fruit that we can target to help these patients do you have any thoughts, advice for the rest of us in terms of how to make the financial justifications for creating such a clinic? And maybe you could comment on both academic institutions as well as community hospitals. Yeah, we've had a lot of interest from other medical centers and other physicians and other healthcare providers have reached out to us to ask some of the same questions that you're asking now. How do we do this? should we be doing this? And I think there's also been a lot of focus on the data and what is the data for this model of care. And the fact is we don't have good data right now. We hope to get better data, but I'm not sure that this is necessarily a problem we're going to solve with data. This might be something that we just need to do because it's the right thing to do, as one of my patient's family members said to me. But the financial part of it is not to be ignored. We have a very cohesive team here, and we're lucky to be in an environment where we've been given the resources, such as space and time, to do this clinic and see these patients. But everybody who works on our team does so out of their belief in the project and the mission. And when patients come to clinic, we can bill that visit as a hospital follow-up visit, but as you've already heard, it's in most cases a two-hour visit with five providers, and that's not a sustainable model if you're just going to bill a follow-up visit. So I think that's really a major question that needs to be 
answered and if we are able to demonstrate the impact that we think we're having on this population in both patient-centered outcomes and the so-called hard outcomes of readmission, mortality, and morbidity, et cetera, then, then I think there would be a lot more interest from hospital systems and insurers to support the model. We feel like an instructive example is follow-up clinics, recovery clinics focused on cancer survivors. 20 years or so ago, there were few of any of those. Recently, I read an abstract that said, I think there are 347 or so currently in North America. That is places that identify themselves as dedicated to caring for the needs of cancer survivors, almost 400 of those. So this is a model this cancer survivorship clinic that is embraced, you might even call it standard of care. It exists at all the leading cancer centers, many community cancer centers. I think they have challenges with reimbursement models. They've found a way to make it work. We like to think that we are today where they were 20 or 30 years ago, that we're launching a movement that hopefully will be transformative in the lives of patients that will provide a, a robust and effective model to impact patient outcomes that eventually will perhaps pay for itself in the context of decreased hospital readmissions and things of that sort. We don't know that now. We won't know that for a while. But if you look at the literature and interact with ICU survivors, the problems are so compelling, you know, they're so emotionally arresting, it seems clear to me that we've got to do something. It certainly seems obvious that there is such a need, but you're right. I think in our system, it's hard to find money to pay for these services. However, I'm inspired by recent changes in the way we're thinking about, for example, paying palliative care physicians. It seems like we are actually thinking more about what's right for the patient. So perhaps, you know, there are better days ahead. That really makes me think about a way to advocate nationally for clinics like this. And I wanted to also see if uh, you've taken any collaborative roles with the SCCM and the Thrive Project to work on PICS. We are engaged in a wide range of dissemination efforts. Patients connect with us uh, both locally here and in many cases nationally and internationally through the website www.icudelirium.org. People learn about our work often through that website, reach out to us, and we have productive conversations with those patients. And in many cases, those emails are not from patients, but they're from people in the media. So we're disseminating our message that way. There was a nice story about three weeks ago in the Washington Post that was also published in the Atlantic. It talked about the problems ICU survivors have. It talks specifically about our clinic. It uh, interviewed a number of our patients. So we're all about disseminating the message as it relates to Thrive. I'm involved in various subcommittees of, of Thrive. Thrive, of course, the arm of the SCCM focused on long-term patient outcomes. So uh, we're trying to work in a leadership space in Thrive we're trying to be involved in any and every professional society that we can. Carla recently gave a great, very interesting talk on this topic in Germany. So we have gone international, if you will, 
I should say she even gave that talk in German, which was hugely impressive as an aside. So uh, we're doing what we can to to be involved and to let people know about this. There's a special issue coming out in two or three months, and the journal Rehabilitation Psychology is dedicated entirely to clinical issues and critical care. So the message is getting out, and, and we're trying to carry the banner for the needs of ICU survivors and specifically for this model of care and in whatever space we're working in. The other final thing I'd say is that increasingly people from other institutions around the country are contacting us and when they do, uh, we invite them to Vanderbilt and hopefully provide some Southern hospitality, introduce them to what it is we're learning and then build partnerships that continue and that's been quite exciting. Sounds great. I have one more question about your logistics at Vanderbilt. Does the clinic have any collaboration or uh, crosstalk with the inpatient ICU service? And does it have any collaborative efforts with the various rehab facilities in the area? Yeah, I would say it goes beyond collaboration. We're really the one and the same. We're very integrated in the ICU in that everybody who is on our outpatient team works in the ICU, which really gives them that unique perspective over intensive care and the transitions to the outpatient setting. We do mostly have a medical ICU-based team, but we collaborate with our other ICUs here at Vanderbilt, including trauma, surgery, neuro, burn, etc. And we take all ICU survivors in our clinic, including those from other hospitals, And to that end, we're very lucky to have an inpatient rehabilitation hospital just adjacent here to Vanderbilt in in collaboration uh, with HealthSouth. That's the Vanderbilt Stallworth Rehabilitation Hospital and several rehab hospitals and long-term acute care facilities here in Nashville. We're very sort of close-knit group. I, I know we're known as Music City USA, but our number one industry is actually healthcare here in Nashville. And that's really been great to have those relationships and in fact as part of my role as a pulmonologist I've also worked in rehab hospitals and that was one of the drivers really to recruit some of these patients back to the clinic and have them follow up with us after their hospital stay but those are relationships that I think that can be developed even further and as as intensivists become more aware of the outcomes after critical illness, I think there's going to be a lot more focus in the areas of healthcare also on this post-ICU recovery period. Sure. Well, our patient population is aging, so we are going to see sicker and sicker patients, and we are doing a better job at getting them to survive. So I think this is a ever-increasing patient population. This is great work. Thank you so much. I think to wrap up, I would like to get you guys to uh, give our audience some advice about how to launch similar programs at their institutions and, you know, some strategies in before improving care right now related to post-intensive care syndrome. I think this is a topic we've thought about a lot. It's a little bit like uh, putting a tuxedo on an elephant, as they say. It's just a very difficult <laughs> thing to, to do. Uh, no good way to do it. But I think if people wait, if people at hospitals or hospital systems wait, if they wait until they think they have 100% of their ducks in a row to do this, I think they probably will never do it. 
because that's quite a challenge. So I believe we've learned that you want to be thoughtful about it, you want to be careful about implementing it, but at a certain point you just have to jump in the deep end of the pool, get the support of your administration, find some space, and try it. However imperfect that might be, if you wait until you're fully prepared, it's not going to happen. We're learning as we're going. We're seeking input from people from all sectors, and uh, others should do the same. But at a certain point, there's a time for action, and if people are listening and they're on the cusp, I would encourage them to take that step, because if they're waiting to get all of their ducks in a row, that probably is never going to happen. Dr. Steven? I agree. We just we just jumped in and we did a lot of things wrong and we're happy to share what those things are. <laughs> but, you know, to some extent it's going to be a little bit specific to each medical setting and if you're a community hospital or if you're a big medical center, your your needs and your capabilities may be somewhat different. But even having I think one intensive care type person, whether it's an intensivist, a nurse practitioner, a case manager, somebody who works in the ICU and knows about critical care, come down to the clinic and see patients after discharge. You will learn so much just by talking to patients. And I think really just the motivation to help them goes a long way, even though a lot of other resources are are required and would be helpful at the base of this is a desire to help patients and to help them on the road to full recovery, and you can do that even without a lot of resources. That's great advice, and that is the bottom line, taking good care of our patients. I would like to use this opportunity to thank the two of you and our audience for joining this conversation today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. For the iCritical Care podcast team, I am Dr. Ludwig Lin. Mark your calendar to attend the 45th Critical Care Congress to be held February 20th through 24th, 2016 in Orlando, Florida, USA. This five-day event will bring together more than 6,000 members of the critical care community from around the world and will offer opportunities to share creative and stimulating ideas, make valuable connections, and obtain inspired perspectives. Visit www.sccm.org slash congress to register and for more information. Ludwig Lynn, M.D. is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit Altabates Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lynn did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and Critical Care Medicine Fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient-family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or 
info at sccm.org.